Thank you for listening to In Good Faith, the Central Reformed Church Sermon Podcast. This episode's sermon is titled, The Good Life, Grounded in Empathy, and is based on Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. It was delivered on Sunday, July 10th, 2022, by Pastor Stephen D. Pierce. invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. This is on page 844 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. Just then, a, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, who, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. We continue our sermon series for the month of July on exploring the good life grounded in the gospel. What is the good life? Well, some think it's about wealth and and happiness. In fact, there are a number of pastors who on television like to smile at you and tell you it's all about prosperity. You know the preachers. They tell you exactly what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. But I think, I really think God's vision of the good life is so much larger than, than that. The, the good life isn't based on that which will fade away, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Things that fade away are our good looks and our good fortune. 
It isn't about feeling good. It isn't about having goods. It turns out the good life is about something that's happening inside of us. It's found within. It's a life lived within the bounds of God's great goodness. It is a life grounded in the promises of the gospel and one lived with purpose where we as Christians try to find where God is at work, wherever that may be, and be sensitive to how God is leading us into that work. Last week, we talked about forgiveness, everybody's favorite subject. We looked at forgiveness as a component of the good life, choosing to forgive, not to relinquish power to those who have, have really hurt us, choosing not to repress, but to process our feelings. And we even looked at C.S. Lewis, who said that forgiveness is it's really all about learning how to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. If there was ever a summary of forgiveness, it would be what C.S. Lewis wrote long ago. But today we look at the good life grounded in empathy. Empathy being the ability to perceive what someone else might be experiencing, to feel with them. Why empathy? Why? Well, we have a clear picture of empathy in the life and ministry of Jesus who wept over and with those who were hurting and lost who rejoiced with those who had experienced something of God's goodness in their lives, healing, who entered into the brokenness of the human condition more deeply than anyone else ever has done by becoming a sacrificial lamb. Years ago, and even now, the dominant understanding of God was one of a distant, unmoved lawgiver who was, in theological terms, impassable or unfeeling. Over the past century, however, as we've grappled with multiple world wars, poverty, migration, and the Holocaust, theologians have turned to the Bible to find a God who is not unmoved, but who is wholly engaged with the experiences of his people to the point of even showing feeling. Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel called this divine pathos. And by this term, he meant the feeling of God, which was conveyed through the words of the prophets, the deep feeling or emotive connection God has to God's people. Later, Christian theologians like Jürgen Moltmann and Dorothy Zola connected God's pathos to the story of Jesus, noting that when Jesus embraces the outcast, has compassion for the poor, or upbraids the self-righteous. He does so as one who truly manifests the divine pathos. Jesus' tears, laughter, reflect more than his own human emotions. They reveal the heart of God the Father. And his willingness to suffer in pursuit of his Father's redemptive purpose reveals God as one who suffers with God's people. This is divine pathos. That word pathos. We've heard it. We throw it around. It is the root of the word empathy and also of the word sympathy, 
And those two words get mixed up all the time. To have sympathy is to suffer alongside of. While empathize really means feeling into. We say to people often, my deepest sympathy. I'm not trying to um, downplay the role of that word in any way, shape, or form. But there is a difference. Because empathy really means experiencing someone else's feelings. It implies so intimately approximating oneself into another's experience that you might feel another's pain. It's often spontaneous. It's almost always unconditional. And in some way, it's trying to see life through another person's eyes. When they experience pain, empathy is their pain in our hearts. So today's gospel lesson and story of empathy comes on the heels of Jesus sending his 70 disciples out on a mission that is quite fruitful. He sends them out to tell everyone just how close they all are to the kingdom of God. And they come back with their success stories telling how even demons submit to the authority of Jesus. There's great celebration. They're they're together. They're rejoicing as the Spirit had led them. And they're celebrating that. And then in the midst of this excitement, a lawyer steps forward. And he asks two questions. The first is a test. A, a literal translation would sound more like this from the Koine Greek. Teacher, I will inherit life eternal having done or for, fulfilled or acquired what exactly? It's a complicated question. It's, it's, actually, it's hard to articulate in the Greek. So Jesus answers the question with another question, something he often does. He asks two things that are connected, and this is important. First, he wants to know, well, what's in the law? You're a lawyer. You know the scriptures. Uh, You already have your answer. Tell me what it says. But then he adds this really interesting twist. He follows with a personal question. He basically says to the lawyer, how do you read it? Jesus doesn't think of scripture as a dead and stagnant set of words that mean the same thing to everyone. No. The scriptures are alive. They're living and active. And how we read them determines how we will respond to God's message. I've always loved that moment in this story. And the lawyer doesn't hesitate. What does he do? He quotes the Shema. Every Jewish man, woman knows the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hey, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your might. The lawyer adds a part of Leviticus 19, and when you blend these two verses together, it gives us what we call the great commandment. If we love God, we will love our neighbor. And so in that moment, the lawyer nails it, knocks it out of the park, And just as Jesus churns to rejoin his friends, still euphoric after their successful mission trip, the lawyer asks a new question. And this isn't a test. 
It's an attempt to justify himself, to make sure everybody listening knows how righteous he is. So it's interesting to me that this man who was just challenging Jesus a moment ago now feels the need to get his approval. So he asks, yes, but who is my neighbor? And to answer him, Jesus does what he, he, he does best. He tells a story. It's a story about something that happened on the Jericho Road. A dangerous 17-mile-long road between Jerusalem and Jericho that would have been familiar to everyone hearing this story. That road actually drops from 2,500 feet above sea level in Jerusalem to 770 feet below sea level in Jericho. The road is familiar because it's better known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's familiar because although it's a popular road, it's also a dangerous one in which the shadow of death felt near as those traveling on it were vulnerable to the thieves and drifters who lived along it. Jesus replies to the lawyer. I love it. Well, okay, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. The first two people who accidentally happened by are a priest and a Levite. If you're the man lying in the ditch, who better than two men who are committed to serving God to help you out? At the very least, no more harm will come to you. But these guys walk right by. Maybe they didn't want to be contaminated because in Scripture there was a verse that talks about if you touch a dead body, you are now ritually unclean. Or it could be that there was just enough xenophobia in them that they couldn't bring themselves to stop. Those who are listening to Jesus tell the story are all good Judeans. And they would have expected the third person to come along to be a Judean. The hero of the story would naturally be one of them. How shocked they must have been when that figure turned out to be a hated Samaritan. And I'm not going to get into the history now. It would take a while, a second hour or two or three. But I will say this, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans all goes back to King Solomon's son who could not keep the kingdom together. In fact, at that time, ten tribes renounced their allegiance to David's line. They no longer worshipped in Jerusalem, and eventually they gave up worshipping God alone. About the time Israel and Judah were captured and led off into exile, the Samaritans were already intermarrying with people from other nations, losing their distinctive heritage. And so for those in the southern tribe of Judah especially, their abhorrent behavior was a bridge too far. In fact, in their minds, the Samaritans were the scum of the earth, less than Gentiles. But it's the Samaritan who is moved in spirit. Gets down off of his animal, cleans the man's wounds with wine and oil, not cheap, bandages him up, and then puts the man on the same animal that he's been riding. 
In contrast to his listeners' cultural mores and assumptions, the Samaritan, a man who is ethnically and religiously the other, is the very one who shows them how to manifest the pathos of God. It's the Samaritan who's the empathetic one. Unlike the first two passerby, he showed empathy as he looked at the injured man as a real human being, as a brother, a neighbor rather than an enemy, cared for him as he would have cared for anyone in his own tribe. That's empathy. That's divine pathos. Well, there's a well-known lecturer and author, Brene Brown. Many of you in this, this room worshiping online, you know Brene Brown. Dr. Brown notes that empathy is a choice and it is a vulnerable choice. In order for me to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Empathy is like finding someone, someone in a deep, dark hole who is yelling, Help! I'm stuck! And then you climb down into the hole and you say to them, I am here for you. I know this feeling all too well. In the story Jesus tells, the good Samaritan first, before anything else he does, had to connect with the vulnerability in himself. He had to connect with a memory of being lost and scared. Perhaps he recalled a moment when a bully in his youth beat him up, or maybe his father beat him up, or perhaps he merely conjured up the familiar feeling of fear, of knowing how vulnerable he was to attack in a land that was not his own. Often we encounter another person's suffering and our response is to immediately make things better for them. We, we, we try to put the silver lining on their pain. I'll give you an example. Oh, I'm so sorry you had a miscarriage. Uh, obviously, God has something better in store for you. That's not what you say. That is absolutely the wrong thing to say. Or, I'm sorry you lost a loved one. They're in a better place now. That is the worst thing you can say to someone who has lost someone near and dear to them. You don't say that. But I imagine that the Samaritan didn't try to explain away the injured man's suffering when he encountered him on the road. I wonder if he didn't pause for a moment and cry with him over this injustice before making the decision only then to act on his behalf. What people often need in times of sorrow and in times of great joy is for us to put ourselves in their shoes. To try to come to a greater understanding of who they are and what they need in that moment. I think the Good Samaritan did this because he saw the injured man through the eyes of God. This is the only thing that makes sense. He viewed him with a divine pathos that looked past the victim's ethnicity and religious background and saw a human being, a real human being who had real human being needs. Someone who was part of a larger human community, a community in which we are all God's children and we are all neighbors. In such moments, we experience a bit of the eternal in our midst. 
the act of extending empathy creates a sacred space. In fact, millions of sacred spaces are created each day around the world because of acts of empathy accomplished with the help of the Holy Spirit. And these are most often not spectacular acts. They're often pretty mundane. Like the actions of a kind soul who noticed the one who was wounded and cared enough to bind, him, bind up his wounds and to provide for his recuperation. There's really nothing too exciting about that. There are millions of stories of mercy and action that have never been told, of compassion that, that go the second mile. But as ordinary as these stories are, they make all the difference in the world to those whose lives are touched by them. I would go as far to say that is when we are engaged in the most mundane activities that we make the most difference in another person's life. So when you get right down to it, that's the only place where we can really make much of a difference in the life of another human being. We mortals rarely achieve the level of influence that can truly make a difference for hundreds or thousands of people out there. For the most part, we have the opportunity to touch a life here and a life there. Every once in a while. And it's through the quality of our character. Not anything spectacular that, that we do. And it's through the way we conduct our relationships. Not through any great achievement that we make a difference in someone's life. So from that perspective, the good life is really nothing special at all. It's a matter of simply living out the goodness and mercy and pathos of God. But then again, that is precisely what makes it so meaningful and worth living as we participate in the generous goodness of God. The good life. Grounded in empathy. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the words that we have received this day. We thank you that if we are ever to show empathy, it is because you empathize with us. If we love, it's because you first loved us. And so grant that the words we have heard this day may, through your grace, be so grafted within our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruits of the Spirit to the honor and praise of your most holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people say, Amen. New to Central? Since 1840, we have been connecting people to God and to one another through scripture, sacrament, song, and service. We are located on the corner of College Avenue and Fulton Street in the Heritage Hill neighborhood of Grand Rapids. We hope you'll give us the opportunity to meet you in person soon. 
To learn more about our mission, ministries, and the ways you can grow and serve, please visit our website at www.centralreformedchurch.org.